Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to the preaching of your word, Lord, I pray that you would bless it, that we would have our hearts turned toward you and to trust in you and in your promises. Would you cause our hearts to fear you and treasure you and love you? And we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 16, and we'll read to 26. Galatians 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, verse 16. All right. This is God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, keeping you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus far, God's word. So we've read that to give us some context. Our text that we are going to focus our attention on is specifically verse 22, 23, Basically, just 22 and 23, and we'll pick it up uh, after that next week. Our first point today, and hopefully you can see, that, see this with me, and if you've got the outline, you can see there's 11 points, so I hope you pack the lunch and supper and maybe a sleeping bag. Uh, our first point is this. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in those whom Christ's blood has purchased. Now, we have to get to the, the jokes out of the way right away. You might say, why is it that Jordan got two sermons on the bad list, the, uh, the naughty list, and I get to preach this beautiful list of the fruit of the Spirit? You might say that that would be a lack of the fruit of the Spirit on my part, wouldn't you? Uh, so my apologies to Jordan. Oh, these lists, though, are pretty different. We just read these two lists. They're pretty different, aren't they? Pretty different. One is a much more pleasant list than the other. The one deals with ugly things and the other deals with beautiful things. The one is a list of things, the meanings of which we are happy to tell our children about if they ask. The other, we would have to use age-appropriate explanations, wouldn't we? But there's another difference. I want you to see that as well. One is said to be a list of works. And the other is a list of fruit. I wonder if you noticed that. Work is different than fruit, isn't it? 
I work to produce a crop and the crop isn't my work. It is the product of my work. We might call it my, my work. The first list is the, the terrible list. That is a list of works. And the second is a list of fruit. Paul is jarring our attention here by saying this. Now, why would Paul choose a different word for each of these two lists? Couldn't you biblically call patience a good work? You can, in fact, actually call it a good work. Christians are told to work out their salvation. Work or good work, works which please the Lord. These are not dirty words in scripture. This is not anti-gospel to say good works. These are lovely things in scripture. But what Paul is trying to distinguish here, he's trying to draw attention to, is the difference between things that the Holy Spirit gets credit for and the things which we in our flesh would get credit for. Even those works which a Christian does that are pleasing to the Lord are rightly to be considered the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. We can see this in in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Jesus says that we ought to let our light shine before men so that they might give glory to our father in heaven. He gets credit for these things. Yes, I was the one who produced those things. They're evidence of his work of salvation within a person who once was dead. Things which he ultimately ought to be pointed to when somebody says, whose doing is this? That was the Lord's doing. And so this list, the fruit list is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. Paul is very eager to draw a distinction between the flesh versus the spirit. We've seen this a lot already in the book of Galatians, haven't we? The flesh versus the spirit. He's also talked about this in terms of the law versus the promise of God. So the spirit belongs to the works of the, or the fruit of the spirit belongs to the promises of God and the flesh belongs to the, the laws. And here's how Paul has so far, if we give a summary, Paul has given us two ways of thinking about the flesh. So the flesh meaning what you would naturally produce, the things that you can accomplish your own flesh, you yourself focusing on you. And Paul has essentially said that there's two ways to live by the flesh. Now, if we take the idea that Jesus is our Lord and savior, this is a confession of a, of a Christian, right? That he is our Lord and he is our savior. We can sort of apply this to the idea of the works of the flesh. These two kinds of way of living by the flesh. First, we can see some people treat the flesh as their Lord, your flesh as your Lord. You are ruled. You are You are enslaved to your own desires. I am going to live as if my own desires and appetites and me as if I am Lord. So this is obvious in in a lot of these things that, that Paul was saying in this list. A person who treats his desires as Lord is going to live according to the flesh. The flesh is their Lord. Somebody who's a hedonist is living as if their flesh is their Lord. But Paul also says that there's another way to live by the flesh. And that is to treat your flesh as your savior. This is very common when we talk about religion. 
And this is when you treat your flesh as your, your savior is where you think, yes, God is Lord. There is a God and I owe him my obedience and I have sinned against him and I am going to make it right with him. I am going to be my savior. And so I'm going to find whatever rules he has and I am going to keep them in order to earn my way to God. To pay off whatever debt I owe him or to make sure I don't have any debt against him. And both of those is living by the flesh, Paul is saying. Both of those lead to destruction. Both of those lead to hell. If you're here and you are living by the flesh, meaning you are treating yourself as God, the Bible is very clear that your end is destruction. And God is God. And you will be judged according to your sin. And you will be punished for your sin eternally in hell. You will get what you deserve. And what you deserve is to be punished in hell. But this is also true if you are here and you're living by the flesh in the other way. Which is probably more common for somebody who shows up at church on a Sunday morning. Living by the flesh. I know that there is a God and I will achieve salvation by the things that I do, the practices that I do, the things that I do not do, the things that I do. You need to know as well, dear friend, that if you are living by the flesh in this way, you will go to hell. And Paul juxtaposes these two ways to live by the flesh by talking about living by the spirit or living by promise. Because here is where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. Where God promises to save sinners by his own work. And this is why God became a man. The son of God, the second person of the three-in-one God. He took on humanity and he lived as a man. And while living as a real human, he obeyed the law in his own flesh. He accomplished what none of us were able to do. He lived righteously. He lived a life that was worthy of heaven. But not only did he do that, he willingly went to the cross. And he took whatever we deserved. He took our sin and he took our guilt. He took the wrath of God that we deserve. On the cross, he suffered in our place. This is why the scriptures say he died for our sins. And so we can live by faith in the promise. And so a person living by faith is a person who says, I know I deserve hell. And I know that I could not work this out in my own flesh, but I trust that God himself did it for me. That Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died in my place for my sins, that he was buried in, that he rose from the dead on the third day. I trust that what he did will be counted to me because what I did was counted to him on the cross. And so Paul juxtaposes these. You're living by the flesh or you're living by the spirit. Now there is an accusation that Paul is dealing with 
which says, oh, if you live by the spirit or live by promise, if you're only trusting in Christ to save you and not in your own works to save you, that's going to lead to a whole bunch of sin. That's going to add more sin. If people don't think they have to work to earn their salvation, well, then they're going to sin even more. But we see is that God has given us a better holiness to stand before God in. I'll ask you the question. If you were to stand before God, whose righteous record would you rather be standing in? Your own or Christ? Would you rather standing before God, him treat you the way that you deserve? Or would you rather him treat you the way Jesus deserves? You are a fool to want God to treat you as you deserve, to think that it would go well with you. And so here, the gospel, the good news by living by promise, this produces a better righteousness, way better righteousness to stand before God in. But it also produces better actual righteousness because those people who trust in the Lord Jesus, they also receive the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart, who gives us a new heart so that we love God that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to the flesh. Either of those two ways of being slaves to the flesh, we are now free. And this is why he says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ sometimes. This is not because the Holy Spirit and Jesus are the same person. We believe that we have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's called the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit works within a believer that same life that Christ lived as a human. The same human life which God, which loved God and which was freed from sin. It's the life of Christ that now flows through a Christian, somebody who lives by trusting in the promises of God. And that life is going to produce fruit that bears resemblance to the life of the Lord Jesus. Elsewhere in the Bible, it compares this to a tree with roots. The life comes from the roots through the plant and it produces fruit. And so the problem that needed salvation was not that we needed more laws or more effort, but we needed new hearts, new roots, new life within us. Not the life of an enemy of God that is now better behaved. Not the life of a person with the old heart that just controls those desires and suppresses them. But a person who has the life of God flowing through them. I want you to take a look at this list. The list of the fruit of the spirit. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't this actually a good life? Isn't this wonderful? Wouldn't you want those things to be true of you? Rather than saying, I've not broken the law as the way that you judge and see the life's, your, your life's success. This is the promised work of the Holy Spirit. Not only to work faith in you and to unite you to Christ so that you are forgiven, but his work is also promised to give you the life that bears the fruit of reconciliation with God. You now get to live as a person 
who is loved by, but also loves God. It is true that these things can be called good works in believers. And the Bible sometimes does call that, call them these. It's important to understand that this is, that more than that, they are the fruit of the Spirit's work. You can't make an apple tree a pear tree simply by pasting pears on it. You need something inside it producing that new fruit. You need to transform and make that apple tree than a pear tree. And this is why it's called the fruit of the spirit. These are not things that you could just produce with more effort. No amount of effort could make an apple tree produce pears. Doesn't matter how hard that thing tries. And these are not works we do in order to keep God liking us. This is the fruit of the life of Christ flowing through a believer. The fruit of being made righteous is righteousness. And we could take a sermon on each of these and perhaps another time we will. But I want you to see that this is called the fruit of the spirit. And they're treated as a cluster, as as one. Rather than as a whole bunch of different diamonds, it's one diamond with lots of different facets. You spin it and you can see a different characteristic of this. So we're going to look first at the the fruit of love. Paul begins with love, and that's not random. In verse 14, if you go back up in in the chapter, Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled by one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, love is a summary of the law of God. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. It doesn't mean that if you love somebody, then you can break all the commandments. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you aren't loving somebody when you are breaking the commandments. And also that whenever you've broken one of the commandments, what you've done is you failed to love God and probably also your neighbor. In 1 Corinthians 13, which is commonly called the love chapter in the Bible, Paul gives a description of love which sounds an awful lot like a list of the fruit of the spirit. If you look at them, there's a lot of comparisons. And so what we could see here is that the rest of the fruit of the spirit is not additional to love, but you could also see these things as defining what real love looks like. The love that the spirit of God works in us. Godly love is joyful. Godly joy is peaceful and self-controlled. Godly kindness is loving. Now, first of all, love is an action, but it is also the state of one's heart. You can do something for somebody's benefit without loving them, without desiring their benefit. The spirit works love in us for God and for neighbor to love someone is to be concerned and committed to their well-being for their good to consider their hurt as if it were your own to consider their pain as if it were your own. This is how Christ loved the church. He considered her death and sorrow as if it were his own. And he came down from heaven to treat it as if it was his own. He didn't come down to heaven just to show that love, but to act on that love. So Christ-like love, the, the fruit that the Spirit would bear resemblance to, we would desire that good would come to others. And so far as it depends on us, that we would pursue that. 
This is the evidence of the Spirit working in us. We said love for neighbor and also love for God. See, God has no need, so then how do you love God? You can't be out for God's good. He has an infinite amount of good, and he, you can't add to it. So love for God is a desire for him, to know him, to delight in him, to glorify him, and to honor him. I, wa- I wonder if you could see how this is expressed in the Lord's Prayer. In the words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an expression of what it means to love God. This is your heart of love to God because he first loved you. Where you also acknowledge that all good things come from him so that when you receive good things, you enjoy the giver of those gifts more than you enjoy the gifts themselves. Doesn't mean you you don't enjoy the gifts, but ultimately they are the enjoyment. They are for the enjoyment of God. You also love that the Lord is God and that you are not. You treasure him, you delight in him. And of all the possessions you could have, the love and affection of God is the greatest. It is the sweetest. I want you to see that this is the the solution to that sin of sensuality that was listed uh, above and also that Jordan helpfully explained last time where we are enslaved to the things that God created. This is now the solution to that where we love him and our delight is in him so that we're not enslaved by the gifts that he gives us because we treasure the giver of the gift. And so that's a solution better than making an extra rule for how much you can enjoy food or sex or other things. A love of the giver more than the gifts that he gives. And you're not only willing to obey God, but you love to obey him. And so brothers and sisters, this is not something that could be done without the Holy Spirit. It's not. He works within us to give a new heart with new desires. Doing works of obedience was possible even with a wicked heart, but not works that were done out of love for God. All people are born with a wicked heart. And need not only forgiveness from wicked actions that flow from a wicked heart, but they also need a new heart, which at its core loves God. And so to the Galatians, Paul is saying, you think you've made progress by trusting in your works of the flesh, the things that you've done by adding rules to impress God. You're not loving God. You're doing things not to bless God, but to gain his favor. That's for your benefit. You're fighting with one another. And finding ways to separate over who's better and who, who loves God more or who's a more spiritual person. You're not loving one another. And the works of the flesh are evident. And he listed them earlier, including hatred of others and seeing others as competitors or people who are getting in the way of your joy. But the fruit of the spirit, Paul says, is love. This is the evidence that you know God, that you love from your heart. God, and you love from your heart, each other. Third point is the fruit of joy. The fruit of joy. The Spirit of God bears the fruit of joy within us. Joy is not the same as being happy, clappy, or clicking your heels, although it could be expressed that way. Joy is not 
only being willing to serve God and love people, but finding it a joy, finding it a gift. It's delighting in God. Gloom and being emotionless are not holiness. The goal of the Christian life is not no emotion, but delighting in what is truly delightful. Being people who delight in the gifts of the Lord rather than being enslaved by the gifts of the Lord. Who see these as gifts from the Lord and so enjoying the Lord is the goal of those gifts. Some have used this as a weapon against people who have felt greatly discouraged or melancholy. You need to have joy and obviously you don't have the spirit. And people use this as a weapon against them. But, and then others would maybe... Uh, counter by saying, well, there's Psalms, there's laments in the Bible and in Psalms and of course the book of Lamentations. And the answer doesn't come from ignoring one or the other text, but taking both texts as they were intended. The goal of the Christian is not discouragement. I think we can agree to that. And though a Christian may feel discouraged, they look to God for joy. They come to him with their discouragements and they seek joy from him. They come to him to be shepherded by his words, which speak of the joy that is his. They seek to be reminded of the joy which Christ purchased for them with his blood. And they take that as joy. They agree that this is joy and they rejoice and they take joy in these things, but not perfectly. They will sometimes have to speak to their souls calling themselves to joy. You might have to say, my emotion right now is not joyful. But that doesn't mean I don't belong to the Lord. I am not feeling joy right now. But I am in Christ. I am seated with him. And I enjoy the peace of God of being in my father's house. I am his and he is mine. And even though right now, I feel like to have a job or a wife or a child or a healthy body or a nicer car, it might feel like it would be a better joy. I know that it will not be. I know that the joy I have by being the Lord's is true joy. And so I will rejoice. We sing beautiful songs today in which we called our souls to rejoice and to trust in Christ. This is the fruit of the spirit. It is seeing those things which are delightful and taking delight in them rather than to refusing to see the good. It's a heart that seeks to rejoice even when it doesn't feel like it. It's delighting in the promises of God that are above difficult situations. That the Lord is with you, that he loves you, that you're forgiven. And that he is sovereignly in control over all the events of this world. And he is working them for your eternal good and joy. And that one day there will be a new heaven and new earth. And you will be there with him enjoying these things. Where sorrow is abolished. And so the spirit doesn't work rejoicing in spite of the truth. It's not a truth denying joy but we rejoice because of the truth, which is sometimes hard to see and feel, but it is certain because of Christ's death and resurrection and also his 
reign, his sovereignty over all things. He works joy. Next is the fruit of peace. Now, peace with God is the gift of salvation, right? The biggest problem that a, a human faces, that, the, that, that mankind faces, is that they are enemies of God, that they in their hearts see God as an enemy, and that he also sees them as an enemy because of their sin. But, the, but peace, peace with God, not just the feeling of peace, but actual peace with God is the gift of salvation. A soul which God does not count as his enemy, and a heart which no longer counts God as enemy. Because the Lord Jesus was treated as an enemy instead of us. So we could be treated as sons and daughters as he himself deserves. And so peace is enjoying the status of peace. It's not a Zen type of feeling, feeling nothing. But it is a calm heart in response to chaos around. Knowing that God is your father and you stand before him with Christ's perfect record. And because you have peace with God, you also see others differently. Because if, if Christ accomplished this peace in you with God by his own work, you're not now, you're now not seeing men and women as your enemies. They're not a threat to your pleasure or your rest or your happiness. They can't stand between you and real life and joy and happiness. They can't because Christ accomplished that for you. Since God is your life and your joy and you don't seek your comfort and worth from created things, the people in your life do not stand in the way of your joy. Even the people who hate you do not stand in the way of your joy. So you do not need to see them as enemies. They can't rob you of joy or life or security. So you don't need to be combative or competitive with them because you have the Lord. This means that though you're going to strive to live justly and you're going to love justice, You don't have to fight to ensure people are treating you the way you deserve. Because you can leave room for the justice of God. Either God punished Jesus for that person's sin against me, or that person will be punished by God in hell for it. And you'd prefer that it was Christ punished for them. So being argumentative might fit with the world's view of holiness or morality or spirituality but it is not the, the, the fruit of the spirit of Christ. It's not the fruit of a man or woman who's living the life which Christ purchased for him or her. This doesn't mean that we make peace with sin or with false teaching in the church. Paul right here is taking aim at false teaching in the church. He's not making peace with it. But it does mean that we are to aim for peace while insisting on the truth of the word of God and on his holiness. The spirit's fruit is a peaceable person, willing to fight for the gospel because the gospel is the only pure living water that allows us to have peace with God. So you are fighting for peace when you are fighting for the gospel. But a person who fights for the gospel because of the work of the spirit is somebody who's fighting because of a love of peace, not a love of fighting. You are a lover of peace and you enjoy it much more than fighting because the Lord Jesus Christ has made peace between you and God. 
Fifth, the fruit of patience. And there is no peace without patience. Because this enables a person to bear with hardships and insults over a long period of time. Even the most angry people say they have a short fuse. Nobody's going to say I have no fuse. And so there's really no peace without patience. Patiently waiting for the Lord to rescue you from this trial in whatever way he decides best. Maybe that's by the person changing or repenting or maybe healing from disease or that better job coming or the friend which you've prayed for that the Lord would give to you. Or maybe even the grace to sustain you through these things while you wait for eternal life. Patience with others also comes with a right understanding of the gospel and his word. When you consider how much you have sinned greatly against the Lord and how patiently he has borne with you and has carried and loved you, and then you consider in relation to that the small amount of patience that is required to love others. Considering this patience of the Lord, it produces fruit. Of you choosing patience with your kids or church members or family or coworker, rather than anger. Not angry on the inside and bottling it up, but a patient that is also inside and then it expressed outside. And that does come with the humility, but it also comes with the knowledge that the Lord is for your good. And you're not patiently waiting for him to care for you. You are patiently waiting while he is caring for you, knowing that even those things that are happening while you are patient is him actively working for your good. You're not waiting for him to care for you. He is caring for you through these things and working through them for your benefit. The fruit of kindness is next. Kindness is not different than love, but it does explain a little bit better what love is. It makes it very practical. Not merely the kind of love that sends hopes and prayers for your good, but it, it offers help for that to happen. Uh, it is a person ready to help and care. Because the Lord in the gospel is not just a forgiver of our sins. He's also a providing father who provides for our needs and who invites us in the Lord's prayer to care for and to provide for our daily bread. And so the spirit producing fruit in us would produce that same kind of love for us to each other. Not just wanting good things for people, but pursuing those good things as well. It's not only caring if somebody comes to church or not, although that is part of loving care, but also caring if they had a hard week at work or if their father has recovered from his heart attack. This is the heart of Christ for his dear people, and therefore it is the fruit that we would expect to see the spirit work in those who belong to Christ. Seventh, the fruit of goodness. The spirit works. He never work, uh, produces anything that is bad. He only produces good works. Morally good things. There's no kind of kindness or, or peace that makes a man or woman to, to do things that are bad. That's not love or kindness. It is a lack of love or kindness. And the goodness of God refers to his intention to do good to us. Rather than 
to see people to, to get what they deserve. Our desire is that they get good things. We're not looking for people to get what's coming to them. We want them to get good and not evil. And that doesn't mean we don't appreciate godly justice or police or courts or even a military, but our ultimate desire while wanting justice, our default is to desire good, not just for ourselves, but also for others. Next is the fruit of faithfulness. And it is a love of trustworthiness in yourself and others. And there's a kind of person who says, I really want people to trust me. But then there's also the kind of person who says, I really want people to be able to trust me. This is the desire that people would be able to trust you. Not just you want people to trust you, whether, they, whether you should be or not. But it also has to do with being dependable. You can be an undependable person, somebody that people know they can't count on, even if you've never broken a promise to them. Maybe you've always promised to be undependable or somebody they can't count on for help. But this is producing somebody who is faithfully looking to care for people and faithfully interested for their good. But this word actually in the Greek, and I'm no Greek scholar, but this is, it seems to be intentionally loaded with a double meaning, a man of trust. And we can see this if we look in 1 Corinthians 13 with a parallel passage that trusting other people is also one of the fruits of the spirit. That means that where possible, you don't assume somebody is untrustworthy. You actually desire that people are worthy of trust. You're not a suspicious person always accusing people without proof. You would rather, all else considered, you'd rather not treat somebody as a liar. You're not always accusing people of having bad intentions. And what you don't know, you're willing to reserve judgment until proven guilty. That doesn't mean you're not a careful person. It doesn't mean that you're a, a gullible person. It doesn't mean that you're not wise doesn't mean that you don't do your homework before buying something or hiring somebody. doesn't mean you won't get a lawyer to look over documents. But it means that you're not likely to be telling people that you don't trust them all the time. You love trustworthiness. It's your favorite. I don't need to know every evil hidden plan in every supervillain in the world stage. Every owner of a big company or world leader. I don't need to know every hidden evil plan or every hidden evil plan of the people on my street because it won't change the plans of the Lord. And certainly it won't change my eternal future. So we're not conspiracy theorists. And we don't accuse people of bad intentions when we cannot have access to it. Now, without a confidence in the sovereignty of God, I would be prone to treasure all kinds of unproven accusations about people as a way to protect myself and control the future. And only a person who has the spirit of God working a confidence in the sovereignty and goodness of God can do this. Because you know that all things are in his hands and he governs them for the good. There it is again, the good of his dear people. Nine, the fruit of gen gentleness. This is also called meekness. 
And now there's many things that could happen to provoke you to anger, but they don't. But it also means that you don't bottle it up. It's not like anger on the inside is good so long as you don't put it out. The meekness that is described here is internal as well as external. The anger of man does not produce righteousness. Now there is godly anger and we see that in scripture. But godly anger is what arises not for yourself but for the name of the Lord. And anger is only godly if it motivates you to godly action. You can't lose it and be like, well, it was godly anger. That's not godly anger. If godly anger sometimes motivates you to protect others, even at the risk of your life, rage is not a godly action. It is being controlled by anger rather than by the Lord. So gentleness means that even when godly anger arises, it doesn't control you. And the desire is not that to vent anger, but that desire that works within you that is that, that you can't hold in is the desire to do the right thing, not to vent your anger. And so the spirit produces the fruit of gentleness in a man or woman dealing gently with others, especially if dealing roughly with them would probably make it easier to get what you want. And that's the life of the Lord Jesus running through you because that's the way he deals with us his sheep. He is gentle with his sheep. That doesn't mean he's weak. It doesn't mean he's permissive. But his actions toward us are not meant to crush but restore us. He is fierce toward the threats and enemies of his dear sheep. He does get angry, but he is slow to anger. And his anger doesn't control him. What does is his love of righteousness and his love of his father and his love of his people. And the Lord Jesus could be characterized as meek and gentle, even though he overthrew the, the, the temple, uh, the, the changers, the money changers tables, and he made a whip and drove them out of the temple, even though he preached fiercely at the false teachers, even though he preached of the coming fires of hell for those who do not repent and believe. Yet in spite of all of those things, he was still characterized as meek and gentle. That's what stood out. The Lord is gentle. That means he's no more severe than he would ever need to be. Anger only when righteousness would demand it. But gentleness never needing a reason. John Piper describes this tenderness of the Lord as velvet steel. A beautiful picture of the Lord's gentleness. So dear brothers and sisters, the Lord is so with us. And so his spirit would work within us that kind of a life. Last is the fruit of self-control. And if love might be the summary of the fruit of the spirit, then self-control might be the summary of Paul's point here. It's an internal control of the person by the transformation of their heart. It's not being controlled and making sure you do these things simply because others are forcing you to do it or because of consequences or rewards, it is an internal desire to do these. You are self-controlled rather than consequence-controlled. You are self-controlled rather than police-controlled. This is an internal desire that is worked in you. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit for those who are not living by the flesh, in those two different ways to live by the flesh, right? 
to be their own Lord or to be their own Savior. It is the fruit of the person who is trusting in the Lord Jesus to forgive their sins, but also to reconcile them to God. You are self-control. And this internal control is something that extra rules could never do. Extra rules might conform a person's outward actions for a while, but they'll just shift to something else. We'll just pick something else on that list. Whatever our current society finds is an acceptable way to vent our lack of self-control or to express living by the flesh. The work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in us transforms our heart, giving us a new life that trusts in the Lord Jesus. Our last and, and summary point here is this. It is supernaturally natural obedience. Supernaturally natural obedience. Against these, there is no law, says Paul. God's purpose for our lives is not simply that we don't break his laws. If that was his desire, my greatest desire is that none of my laws be broken. If that was God's greatest desire, the best way he could have achieved that was by creating nobody. Rather, what he wanted was somebody who enjoyed and glorified him and loved God and loved others. This is the goal. The goal of redemption is that Jesus would be the first of many siblings. He is the son of God, but that now there's many children. We're there because of Christ's merits and his record. But the goal is that we would be, have met, he would be having many siblings who live human lives. Not, not miraculous lives, but very ordinary lives. This is his goal. This is not a fanciful religious or spiritual list, is it? If you look at this, this doesn't seem very extremely religious or fanciful. or you, it's, it's not very impressive in, in that sense. It's, it's not really a to-do list. It's not about rituals or clothing rules. It's not as spiritual as getting visions or prophecies. It's pretty normal. But it is the goal. A life that pleases the Lord because that's how he designed us to glorify him. This is why Jesus came to be a regular human. And for 30 years, Jesus lived as a regular human. And that was counted to us. That was pleasing to the Lord God. He did this and it was impossible for us because we have hearts that don't love God. Loving God perfectly from the heart was impossible, but that is what he did. And that's what pleases the Lord. This is the reason why the spirit is given to us to work these things in us that are beautiful to the Lord. Because they remind him of his son. Now, if we do these things to earn God's favor, they are a stench to God because they are insulting Christ's sacrifice for us. But if we do these things simply as the fruit of what Christ has done for us, then they are very pleasing. And so what Paul is saying here is the measure of spirituality is not how often you pray. 
Not how good you are at teaching or preaching. It's certainly not how good you are at adding new rituals or promises or rules or practices for accessing God. Not how many reformed social media celebrities you follow or share or like on the interweb. No. Those things people without God's spirit can do. Now we do treasure good biblical reformed theology because it points us to the finished work of Christ and away from the works of the flesh. Away from mystical practices. Away from self-righteousness. Away from trusting in ourselves. But that is not the goal. The end goal is this fruit. Good biblical reformed theology is to produce in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the measure of which not only have we heard and understand these sweet gifts of God of theology, but how much they have transformed us, shaped into the image of Christ. And your families and co-workers, they might know that you care about theology, but would they describe you as gentle? Of course, not by the world's definition of these words, but if they knew the biblical definition of these words, would they describe you this way? Your kids may see you reading the Bible as they should, but would they describe you as patient and kind and gentle and steadfast that it takes a lot to make you angry? Dear brothers and sisters, this is not meant to condemn you who trust in the Lord Jesus. It is meant to condemn those who trust in their holiness or who seek to impress God by extra rules. We're not saved by doing these works. We're saved because Christ did them when he lived 2,000 years ago. And it is counted to us who believe. And as part of his promise, he works these things now in us, which are truly pleasing to God. Not to earn God's favor, but to enjoy it. It's also a comfort brothers and sisters, in our ordinary pursuits. Because the goal of the Spirit's work is to make us spiritual people. And this goal can flourish and is not hindered by ordinary lives. It, express, it is expressed by ordinary lives. It's not done better at a monastery or a retreat center. These are fruits that are right at home. When you are cleaning up after your kids, when you're working an ordinary job, when you are paying your bills, when you are dealing with a, a father who is difficult, when you are teaching your kids about the Lord, when you are pushing your mother in her wheelchair, when you are welcoming somebody to church, this is the Spirit's fruit. And this is the promise of the gospel. Not only to be declared and legally made God's children, which is true, but now given new hearts to enjoy that status and to live according to it. And this is very highly spiritual. It is very ordinary. And it is beautiful. And it is far from breaking God's rules. But it is accomplishing his purposes for us. This is the leading of the Holy Spirit. Giving us new hearts that trust in Christ's work to save us. And also to now work in us a new life. Dear guests, 
you cannot stand before God on your own works, not even if you improve your works. The damnation which Christ received on the cross, that will be your wages for eternity. But in his mercy, the Lord has given his own son to live that ordinary life that you have failed to do in love for God and love for others. And he was punished for your sin so that you could be rewarded for his righteousness. So repent, run to him, and trust in his work rather than your own. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only the pardon of God, but the adoption where he now transforms you to live no longer by the flesh, but by the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not left us to live by our flesh. Not to live as our own Lord. And Lord, look where that leads. Chaos and destruction and death. We are grateful also that you have not left us to be our own saviors. That our flesh is not our savior, but it is you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus accomplished what we could not. Lord, this list is a list, Lord, where if we are being self-righteous, it's a very condemning list because it is things that each of us fall short in. And so we are grateful that you are eager to hear our confessions of sin and you are eager to forgive us and you are eager to transform us and to work this in us. So Lord, I pray that we would be people who live by faith and that we would constantly be actively trusting in your gospel and so be transformed that your spirit would work this fruit in us. Help us to not live by flesh in any of the ways, but be living by faith in what your son has done. And Thank you for your spirit to do this in us. And I pray that you would work this in each of us. For those who have been Christians for a long time, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this sweet gift. And for those here who are not yet believers, Lord, I pray that hearing of what true holiness looks like, Lord, they would realize that they are not. But Christ is. And that they could be treated based on how he deserves. And Lord, I pray that they would receive that good gift by faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.